This podcast is brought to you by Intel V Pro. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hi, and welcome to uh, Washington Post Live. I'm Nicole Dunka, an investigative reporter at the Washington Post. Today for our Race in America series, we're joined by Michael Blakey. He is a biological anthropologist and a member of the Smithsonian's new Human Remains Task Force. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. Well, good morning. It's morning here in Brisbane, Australia, where I uh, am serving as the uh, co-chair of the Commission for the Ethical Treatment of Human Remains um, of the American Anthropological Association, funded by the Wintergren Foundation to hold listening sessions here with uh, Australian Aboriginals. Uh, And um, as we have gone around the world, to hear what descendants of the remains kept in museums and whose cemeteries have been looted, what they think about ethics and its impact, the impact of this research on them. So we will be reporting next year. But um, uh, good afternoon to you. We're so glad to have you because of all of the work you've done on this topic. My colleague Claire Healy and I looked through thousands of documents, including Smithsonian documents and correspondence from Alice Herdlichka's papers, and interviewed more than four dozen people, including Smithsonian officials and experts like yourself, so that we could learn more about this human remains collection, particularly the brain collection. The Smithsonian secretary, Lonnie G. Bunch III, has apologized for the way that many of these remains were collected in the past but also said he hadn't really known about the brain collection until about 2022 when he was able to adopt an ethical returns policy for the Smithsonian. Why do you think it's taken so long for more people to know about this collection? Well, mm, call it, social Darwinism or eugenics. This kind of white supremacist science was the mainstream of American science and Western science in the first half of the 20th century. It still uh, wafts into our contemporary uh, research and theory. And so there's a kind of, uh, I think, denial I've been writing about Alice Herdlishka and the Smithsonian since the 1980s. And often uh, these long and thorough and substantive reports in peer-reviewed journals have been ignored by my colleagues and they keep writing other histories that you know, paint a gloss on uh, the research as though scientists are separate from their society, which they are not, which they cannot be. And so this, uh, these collections put in a critical context demonstrate how science was used uh, for the, as the evidence to authorize white supremacy, um, fallacious evidence, cranial measurements that were meant to represent human intelligence, but that correlated with height only um that was the sort of props used by legislators in support of 
uh, Jim Crow in support of immigration restriction. It is the same science the Nazis used. The Nazis obtained their ideas in large part from the United States. It's a it's network of Western science that was controlled by white people, white men mainly, and uh, what they could understand was a way of, under, of looking at the inequities of our society as though they are natural to make whites innocent. And so perhaps it is the continued desire um, to even retrospectively have white people be innocent of the inequities and in science of the, the subjectivity um, and the questionableness of the kinds of things they did. I would say right off, this is not unlike DeSantis and the bill in he's been pushing in Florida so that all white people should be uh, excused. Children should not learn uh, the actual past because the past is what you know makes us. Um, and uh, without looking at it, the influences on the present, whether it's influences of slavery and Jim Crow on the condition of African-Americans and the privileges of whites in the case of Santa's, or the, our understanding of those conditions in the case of this kind of anthropology that would naturalize racial differences of, in everything. That has um, ideological significance. That is um, something that works for some, but not for others. And so they they don't want to be revealed. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to go more into Alice Herdlichka uh, because you yourself studied him for several years. You dug deep into his personal papers as we did. How would you describe him and what do you think he was trying to find with these human remains? Yeah, well, Alice Herdlichka was the leading physical anthropologist in the United States for the first until uh, from the about, 1903 until he died in 1943. He founded the uh, American Association of Physical Anthropologists. So he was the founder of professional anthropology. He built this on the backs of the earliest physical anthropology, craniometry, measuring the skull to assess uh, intelligence and ultimately to assess human rights and the lack thereof, conducted by Samuel Morton in the mid 19th century which was the, the new justification then of slavery. And uh, so what would Herdlishka want to do? Well, he, you know, for him, it was the objective study of humankind that he understood to be based on comparisons of racial differences. Um, but uh, what he, he served was uh, the restriction of immigration uh, that other eugenicists were also involved in, um, involving the Johnson Act that restricted Southern and Eastern Euro European immigration, and as I had mentioned, uh, Jim Crow. Mexicans, uh, indigenous Mexicans called him the skull doctor uh, because he was often found, I'm sure he, he saw himself as excavating uh, scientifically uh, burials, but he was looting graves um, in many parts of the world, uh, and certainly in Mexico and Alaska, and um, built a, a large collection. This 
these collections were um, sort of the, the thing that gave authority to the scientific racist voice. And so he, he accumulated his authority. Yeah, I mean, in our investigation, we found within this brain collection, within those taken from within the United States that had race recorded, black people made up the largest racial group. What does that say to you about this collection and what Herlichko was trying to do? Well, I had been a research associate at the Smithsonian while on faculty at Howard University, was a research associate there for nine years. Um, and we were interested in understanding, uh, or I was, the physical quality of life of the enslaved. Um, and we, I was part of the first African Baptist Church pop, uh, population study that my colleague Leslie Rankin Hill and the senior Larry Angel directed for that purpose to understand slavery. And we reburied those, That's, you know, maybe the first reburial. Uh, was the first major reburial at the Smithsonian. Um, so, you know, and I believe there are less than 30 European Americans in the Smithsonian's collection, European Americans who were um, excavated archaeologically um, and so represented colonial and 19th century you know, common people. Of the perhaps nearly a little over a thousand uh, white skeletons, these are all from um, uh, ana anatomical, you know, from cadavers uh, that are derived from the poor, people who were in institutions, prisons, hospitals, whose um, Descendants did not or could not claim them. African Americans, I believe there are about 2,000, maybe somewhat more, were usually uh, obtained in a similar manner. So, and Native Americans, there are tens of thousands, perhaps close to, you know, over 20,000 now. So it, it relates to the vulnerability of these people. They had least control as populations, as societies of their, uh, and, of, and especially the poor among African-Americans, uh, of the disposition of their remains, as with the disposition of their lives in general in what is essentially a white supremacist society. Um, so, and I, I, I took interest in your use, your, discussion of a Sami woman, a so-called Laplander from Scandinavia. Of course, they needed some individuals of all races to compare in order to um, come to their interpretations of the significance of race. And I don't know if you thought of this at all, but it certainly came to mind uh, sort of a comment that the uh, negritude poet Amy Césaire made about the Second World War, that it was when this kind of science reached white people in Germany, marginalized white people, Jews, that people began 
began to care about eugenics and began to see the uh, inhumanity of it. While it had taken place, you know, for a hundred years uh, with people of color. And so perhaps your story would resonate with some empathy, but most of these uh, abuses of the dignity of people had to do with the dignity of people of color and the poor. Right. And we, we say that in the story, and today actually we released an illustrated narrative of a woman named Maura, uh, who was an indigenous Filipino woman who died at the, in St. Louis at the 1904 World's Fair. So we saw within the brain collection that the majority of them were people of color, including black people and, and indigenous people. Um, but I also want to go to the topic of repatriation. As you said, you are in Australia as part of another repatriation committee, and you are on the task force for the Smithsonian. From our reporting, we found that out of at least 268 brains that have been collected by the Smithsonian, only four have been repatriated. Why do you think they're at that number? Mm. That's become a sizable question lately as has the disposition of these remains in general. Because uh, NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, was passed uh, 33 years ago. The Smithsonian has an office for repatriation that has been uh, working to return remains to their descendants. I think this, there are two uh, answers that I'm seeing come up in the discussion repeatedly. One is that the funding is inadequate. And if you're talking about um, tribal councils and uh, or Native American communities, they are struggling often to pay for many absolutely necessary things. Why should they have to pay? to rebury these remains. There is also, and maybe there are three things, There's a, it's a difficult issue. Um, the you know, proper spiritual care was not taken. They have to figure out, whoever the descendants are, how best to um, memorialize their remains. That's not as difficult as the funding issue, but a major part of it is my colleagues foot dragging. There are those at the Smithsonian and elsewhere in museums and, and, uh, and, and universities who believe they know what's best. I think they think this thing will blow over and they will find themselves in the end having preserved the evidence for humanity. There was one who said this to me essentially, right? It's about white entitlement manifest as scientific entitlement. You know, it's Native Americans, African Americans never needed white people for anything. But the, the narrative of colonialism and slavery is that we, our ancestors, needed white people to save us from ourselves. And so this is the kind of idea uh, that uh, you know is still current, um, and um, believe 
uh, without uh, justification. That they are serving humanity while they violate basic ethics like informed consent. You brought up NAGPRA, and just for people watching, that's the federal law that mandates um, museums to inform Native American, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian communities of the remains in their possession so that those groups may uh, ask for them back, basically. And the Smithsonian is under the National Museum of American Indian Act, which does something similar. Um, but as we pointed out in the article, those federal laws only mandate the, the uh, mandate this museums to tell those communities, leaving other communities like those of Mary Saras and Maura, the woman you wrote about, leaving those communities uh, without any mandatory notification from these museums. Uh, we've also seen that in recent years, there have been anthropologists and other activists who are pushing for laws that would make, make it necessary to mandate the notification for other communities, uh, such as African-American communities. And I know we've talked about that before. What do you think about the push for those laws? Look, I, uh, from a physical anthropological perspective, one that appreciates human or hominid evolution, I have uh, used something that uh, the great W. Montague Cobb, the first black physical anthropologist often used to make a point, and that is to give a different species name to us, to point, to, to focus on our attributes. I think human beings are homo reminiscens, the memorializer, the thing that distinguishes us as archaic homo sapiens is the burial of the dead. You know, all humans have expect some funerary treatment and no other species does. It is being human to honor one's dead. It's that simple. And uh, as I suppose uh, you could go to the Iliad or any or anywhere to see that that which represents honor is often the thing that's desecrated to dishonor people. And there are many, you know, the, the African burial ground in New York that I directed uh, this uh, study of, uh, shows us in the this 18th century cemetery for the enslaved, the careful burial of the dead by people whose humanity was contested and then mixed with trash from nearby uh, uh, white, you know, uh, colonial and American industries. That is the contestation of humanity. So yes, I think it's unfortunate that a an AGPRA, which is being proposed, uh, should be necessary, but it is. Uh, we need to go further than the, the new law that affords the Park Service the right to, and hope, thankfully, to uh, document all African-American cemeteries. Um, and our commission is seeking through elevated ethical practice and best standards to have our colleagues um, understand our responsibilities to descendants, to the people with whom we work 
in such a way as, you know, to create, uh, you know, uh, new protocols for research that require, at least if one is to act ethically, uh, respect. I, you know, I don't know what the actual outcome will be because the commission will not report until next year. But I do think, you know, uh, at the center of the conversation is the concept of informed consent. That's very basic, and that's what has not been given. Yes, you've talked about your work with the burial ground in New York, and just for people who aren't uh, familiar with it, in 1991, you helped ensure that the uh, skeletal remains of people found, African Americans found in the historical Black Cemetery would be reburied after uh, construction actually found that cemetery. What lessons can the Smithsonian take from your experience there? Well, not only would it be certain that those 419 remains would be reburied, but we began as my Howard University team stepped into the situation in New York in, in the early 90s. We began with assumption that the descendant community, a term that we coined, should have the right to determine the disposition of their ancestral remains. Uh, Native Americans had just won that right. In some ways, we thought our colleagues might next turn to us, the objectified other. Uh, but we had learned, and uh, we, in this way, and by uh, not working without the permission of that community, offered informed consent. And part of getting their permission was to involve African-Americans in New York, the descendant community, the right to help determine the research questions, not the answers, but the questions. And so we ended up with four really dynamic questions, better questions than my colleagues and I have uh, constructed within the, you know, worked on in, within the covers of uh, academic journals. And so we took questions and uh, we also received a great deal of funding because it was important research for people uh, where African-Americans had not been interested in their, the kind of bioarchaeology that had been done on them before. And in the end, um, we uh, performed the first ethical bioarchaeology, certainly in the United States, here in Australia, there are couple of folks who were working along similar lines, but the first ethical bioarchaeology on the world stage and our 2,500 pages of reports, the 2009 reports, are available on the Park Service's uh, uh, African Burial Ground National Monument, which is what it became, website. I think it is the most sophisticated bioarchaeology that has yet been created. So the this ethical uh, um, responsibility to being led in many ways by descendants does not interfere with the quality of the science. I think it enhanced it. And so um, the Smithsonian, uh, again, on the, the task force is a group of people who have yet to make up our minds. You know, all of this is in play. I certainly can't um, presume to say what they will do, what we will do. But I do believe, you know, informed consent, 
is at the center. Yes, and you talked about that task force and we actually have a question from the audience. Marsha Howard of Washington DC asks, what are the long-term goals of this new task force? What will success look like and how will you know when it has been achieved? Hmm. Well, I think that's still for the task force to assess. Hmm. I think it is. When uh, physical anthropology, bioarchaeology in new forms, in new communications and relationships with the broader public is embraced again. It was embraced in the first part of the 20th century by people like the Daughters of the American Revolution who liked the white supremacist conclusions that were being produced by this, these measurement factories at the museums. Um, hopefully, though there is a difficult struggle in play, we will reach into a society in which human rights and respect are honored more than they are yet. And uh, you know, we were talking on the commission with a couple of Western European museums, uh, like the Pitt Rivers Museum that's begun to change even how it does its work with communities. Um, suggesting to me that the repatriation of remains will become an opportunity to build new relationships with descended communities of all kinds, Native Americans especially, because most of the remains are theirs, um, and to help enable their performance of human dignity. That's what burial is about. And just on a broader level, I mean, what are the biggest obstacles that you see for the Smithsonian as they go forward trying to repatriate more than 30,000 remains? Well, maybe it relates directly to your earlier question of what has held this up. They need the funding. If the society is serious about this, then the government needs to provide adequate funding. Uh, one of the things we're looking at as uh, the Commission for the Ethical Treatment of Human Remains beyond the Smithsonian are, is uh, uh, new curricula so that anthropologists will be trained and able to accommodate uh, these ethics that are coming. Um, and what we are in, the matrix of a society that whose new racism is the racism of denial. The denial of racism, even the denial of being white, many people have, um, that nonetheless affords discrimination to continue unacknowledged. We've got a long way to go as a whole society. And so this is one piece of it um, that we'll have to work against those tendencies, those racist and inequitable tendencies towards um, a fair, a just and human society. So it's just, it's going to be 
it's always interesting, I believe. Thank you so much. We'll continue to follow this story, but unfortunately, we're out of time today. Michael Blakey, thank you so much for joining us all the way from Australia for this important topic. It's my honor and pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.